0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary 5 days a week at trashotron.com/agony. Today we're speaking with two of genre fiction's top women writers, Kate Elliott and Melanie Ron, with Jennifer Robertson. They wrote the World Fantasy Award nominee The Golden Key. Kate Elliott is the author of The Crown of Stars series. Her new novel, Spirit Gate, is book one of Crossroads, a new series. Melanie Ron is the author of Dragon Prince series and the Dragon Star series. Her new novel is Spellbinder, a paranormal romance. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to identify yourself so our listeners know who's who. So first thing I have to ask you, uh, do you feel that you write girly books?
1: (laughs) This is Melanie Ron, and I hope I write girly books. Oh, good. I'm a girl. What could be more natural than for a girl to write girly books? Yeah, I hope there's romance and fascination and magic and fulfillment of fantasy. That's my business. If I'm not writing that kind of book, then I should probably get out of the business.
2: This is Kate Elliott. Um, That's an interesting question because I was a tomboy growing up. So, of course, I write a girl's books because I'm a girl. So they have things like love stories in them, but because I did sports when I was in school and was outside working and moving irrigation pipe and loved to go out exploring in the woods, they have all those kinds of things in them, too. And I did a lot of martial arts, so they have all those kinds of things in them, too. So I don't know. Those don't seem like boy things to me because I did them. So that's, that's exactly it. I, d- I don't know
1: what a a, a boyie book would be. I
0: know it would that involve I, a lot of monsters,
2: Oh, I can do monsters. Kate can do monsters. Well, there's all kinds of monsters. Yes, there are. Human all... beings can be monsters.
0: Yes. I'd like to talk to you first. Let's talk a little bit about The Golden Key. This is a really interesting book because three people wrote it, and that's rather unusual. You took a really unusual approach to the crafting of the novel. So tell us a little bit, how did it come into being? What made you, the three of you, decide to get together?
1: Well, first of all, Jennifer is going to be thrilled that you pronounced her name correctly.
0: Good, I'm glad no I am one too. Er, No
1: one ever does. Um, we all three had been friends before this book and stayed friends afterward.
2: Um, In itself, a remarkable accomplishment. <laughs>
1: are you kidding? We're all charming and wonderful people.
0: This is Melanie. We're hearing this is Melanie from. talking
2: again. Yes. Um, Kate, take
1: it. I okay, we were a pro. You do this I was better than I do.
2: I was approached by our mutual agent. All three of us happened to share an agent. And he asked me if I would like to write a novel with Melanie and Jennifer. And being no fool, I said yes. Um, They were more experienced than me. They had more books under their belt. And for me, of course, it was a a big opportunity. We decided to meet. Um, We had a long weekend, a three-day weekend in January or February, which was... Uh, particularly nice for me because it was in Arizona, and at that time I was living in Pennsylvania, so it was like 50 degrees warmer, and I used to sit out on the porch all weekend and go, sun, sun. Um, We brainstormed that weekend. We came up with the magic system, which is actually a really fabulous magic system. We came up with the overall plot, and we also Determined that we were going to write this, and this was Melanie's, uh, in, at Melanie's insistence, that we would write a generational novel. We would each write one generation, so that not, not a braided novel where we interwove stories between each other, but we would each write our own little novella, and that way we would kind of stay out of each other's hair, and that would allow us to... Not get in any fights uh, over characters no, doing things or other.
1: No toes got stepped on. Yeah, uh, because of the the generational thing. Actually, I I just remember the 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 facts that I got asking if I wished to join you two in writing this book came to me while I was at a hotel in uh, Athens, Greece, and the the nice people at the front desk were. Terribly impressed that I was getting a fax from something that said literary agency, New York City, New York. And then, of course, I had to ask them if they had a, a typewriter that, that spoke English so I could type a response back, and their typewriters only spoke Greek. So I had to handwrite a response, and they were still in, incredibly impressed that they had to send something to a literary agency in New York City.
0: Tell us a little bit how did you do the research for this novel? Kate? we uh did you each contribute? Did you like set up a database where you all three could look at it? All or? three
1: of us knew quite a bit about Maloney. about art. We all had um liberal arts educations, and uh we all knew what artists we adored, and we had an idea of how the process the process of fine art might take place. But we're rather dubious about describing it. We read as as far as we could into um, the experiences of artists. But when we sent the manuscript to Michael Whalen, who did the cover, and the cover is breathtaking, um, we told him, um, if there's anything in here that makes you laugh hysterically, please let us know so that we can fix it. It turns out that process is, there are common elements to process whatever sort of art you're doing, whether it's um, painting or sculpture or music I've, um, or acting. One of my favorite programs is Inside the Actor's Studio and listening to Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman or Chris Noth um, or Barbra Streisand describe their process of creating a character and getting into um, a movie or a play or whatever it is, there are definitely things that I can identify with as a novelist.
0: Kate Elliott.
2: I am um, also bought, and I'm not sure if the others did, a copy of a book whose name I can't now recall, which was a book detailing the methods used by the old masters. And that that allowed me to get the vocabulary. I don't have as much of an art history background as Melanie, so more of this was opaque to me. Um, I also happen to have a friend who has painted, and I did give him a copy of a draft and said, please, you know, tell me things that I should put in. And there was actually... um, one scene that I altered a bit because of some of his feedback, and it's a scene toward the end where a person is about to be uh, put away in prison, as it were, and he's kind of has a last few moments to speak to the person he considers his, his, his final and really only apprentice. And because of the suggestions of this person, I realized that what he would tell her are all his little secrets. Mix this with that and you want to use this for you to get a good orange. And that's what he's doing through through that scene as he's being taken away. And I wouldn't have come up with that on my own.
0: One of the things that's interesting about this book is it's described as a trilogy in one volume, which is very (laughs) Very
1: interesting. The only time I've ever seen it as a trilogy is in the German edition because the thing is 337,000 words long. And of course when you translate into German, you get one and a half books for every book in English. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had to split it in three parts for the German edition, but that's the only
2: time I've seen it in in three volumes. But technically it is a trilogy because each section is over 100,000 words long.
0: So who came up with the idea of putting three books in one, which is a great idea. It's really satisfying for the reader to be able to read the whole story in one fell swoop.
1: I'm I'm so glad that you found it satisfying.
0: It was, it's far more satisfying. Few things are more frustrating than starting the trilogy and then having, reading the first two books and having to wait four years for the third book and going, ah, what happened?
1: Well, waiting 10 years as some of my readers have been doing for the third volume of Exiles, which I will write. I promise I will write it um mainly we because i want to find out what happened
2: <laughs> we didn't set out to write a trilogy it's just because we did it as a generational story and that we were actually supposed to each write a novella but naturally none of us could actually write a novella we each ended up writing a short i mean what really, was for us a short novel have,
1: have you seen our other books <laughs> yeah, <I> mean,
2: <laughs> and that's why it seems like a trilogy in one volume because we're all long-winded
0: and how did you create a uh, uh, kind of a, a more unified prose. There, there's clearly differences between each of the parts. Did you guys edit one another's parts at all, or read through them? Tell tell me how that process worked.
1: We all, we all write similar things. In that we use quasi-medieval worlds, and we're very direct with our prose. Um. Yes, we each read over the other's parts, and um for instance pointed out that you're using the same word twelve times on one page which is probably not a good idea that's one of my tricks um... probably written on a night when I when it was four in the morning and I really wasn't paying attention um... we did not consciously go through to smooth it out as you say and um... make it sound like one writer one of the things we consciously did was to say Whoever, the, whoever you bought this book to read, whether it was Jennifer or Kate or me, we wanted you to get the full experience of that author, and I think,
2: by and large, we succeeded in that. I also think there was a funny gestalt going on. The three-day weekend where we brainstormed was amazingly productive, and I think that because we had gotten into a groove of dealing with this world together, that the way we wrote somehow Mm -hmm. kind of snuck closer to each other. There's also one chapter in my section, which is the final section of the novel, which is told from the point of view of a character who otherwise only appears in Jennifer's section. So I wrote the basic things of what needed to be done, um, what she had to do in that. And then I had Jennifer come in and tweak it because the other thing going on, of course, is in my section, it's 200 years later. So she came in and tweaked it and gave it a slightly more archaic feel mm-hmm. compared to the way I had been writing the, the quote-unquote modern section. One of the things that was really interesting to us
1: that we realized afterward is that we each had both the hardest and the easiest job. Jennifer had the hardest job in that she had to set up the whole world. But she had it easiest because she didn't have to resolve anything.
0: Now didn't they Kate
1: had the hardest job because she had to resolve everything, but she didn't have to set anything up, which was the easiest job. I had the easiest job because I had the middle. I didn't have to set anything up, I didn't have to resolve anything. I also had the hardest job because I'm the one who had to keep you reading.
0: now didn't the three of you discuss the overall arc of the story or oh yes? yes okay
2: yeah we we knew we knew what linked the story we knew the the course of what was going on and then we had so we had three smaller arcs and then the bigger arc that tied it all together
0: fascinating and it was nominated for a world fantasy award it was yes
1: it was that was a very great honor
0: yeah i'd like to talk to you about being women in the publishing world the fantasy world tell me a little bit do you think that women writers get treated differently? I mean, do your books get marketed differently? Kate, tell me first. You look like you're...
2: Wow. Um, It is the received wisdom that with the exception perhaps of Annie McCaffrey um, that the best-selling fantasy authors are men. And I have heard it said that it will always be men because they appeal to a demographic who may not be willing to pick up books that are written by women. Um, It... I I don't know. Uh Melanie, do you have any Melanie? Ron? I don't I don't
1: buy that. I think that
0: well, aren't any, most aren't most readers women these days? That's what we're told. Any guy
1: who doesn't pick up a book because it's got a girl's name on the cover is a moron. A good story is a good story is a good story. I mean, I don't care if it was written by a transsexual. You know. Um I don't actually know any stories that were written I'm sure there are some but why the name on a, on the cover whether it's male or female should matter I have no idea however if you look at the early writers of science fiction or fantasy who were women Lee Brackett tell me whether Lee Brackett is a male or female name tell me whether Andre Norton is a male or a female name I think and I have nothing to support this I think they were careful.
2: I think, I think they absolutely knew. were careful. Yeah. Look at Alice Sheldon and yeah. who who wrote as James Tiptree, yeah, and who wrote as a man and whose work was accepted and considered all this one as it as it should have been, as a man and who gained a certain level of acceptance as a man. If she had come into the field in those days, as Alice Sheldon. Ah, I have my doubts. Now, how much things have changed today, I think they've changed a lot. When I was a girl, there were almost no female heroes in the kind of novels I like to read. Those were all boys' adventure. You know, boys got to do all the things that seemed fun. And if they were girl books, they did girl things. I don't know what. Um, And certainly that has changed. There are a lot more... Girl heroines out there, or women who are main characters in novels. I mean, the field has changed radically in the last fifty years. Melanie, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how, how how do you think the the fantasy field has changed for for women? I, to my mind, it seems that the majority of of readers are supposedly women, and I'm surprised to even hear that men outsell women. It's it's kind of surprising. Who
2: to me. who are the that men outsell? Male writers outsell, well...
0: Male fantasy writers.
2: Well, they absolutely do. Jordan, Goodkind, Ted Williams, Hmm. George Martin.
0: That's right. Well, these guys are all on the bestseller list.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Tell us a little bit about fantasy as part of the publishing world. It it outsells science fiction.
2: Good. But it doesn't outsell romance.
0: (laughs) It doesn't outsell romance.
2: Not by a long shot.
0: So... Fantasy is now incorporating a lot more elements of romance, isn't it?
2: There has been uh, some movement in the field to try to branch out in, and, and gain that kind of women's fiction audience, as I understand it. Um, the publisher Harlequin started a couple of lines, including one called Luna, that's specifically to try to pull fantasy into a romance readership or a romance readership into fantasy. And I think they've had some successes and some failures. Uh, and there have been other lines, and then of course, the whole paranormal
0: uh, let's let 's talk about paranormal yeah. romance, uh Melanie. Well, you wrote I, a paranormal romance. why
2: i don 't know that
1: I wrote a paranormal romance because my agent and I spent weeks trying to figure out what this thing was. Um, what he came up with was a sexy, romantic, supernatural thriller which, of course, is four words too many for you know categorization in a bookstore. Um, you're a mystery. You're a horror. You're a romance. You're science fiction. Well, that's two words. Um, you're fantasy. You're literature. Um, or you're none of these things. And I kind of choose all of these things, you know, <laughs> well, except the literature. I wrote something to entertain myself. I didn't consciously say I mean I wish I could consciously sit out set out to say okay this sells this sells and this sells now if I boil all these together in the same pot and come up with something then man I'm practically guaranteed a bestseller and I can pay off my mortgage and my cats are going to eat great for the next you know 20 years I wish I could do that I wrote something that to entertain me because if I'm not entertained, then heaven knows the reader is not going to be entertained.
0: Well, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this paranormal romance genre. Because I find it very interesting. Okay, It's coming from two different directions. As you say, both uh, Harlequin, who's a noted romance publisher, and Tor, who's mm-hmm. a noted fantasy, horror, science fiction publisher, have started lines that are multiple lines that that are dealing in paranormal romance and and so to my mind do you think it comes out of the some of the fan fiction and what's called slash fiction and I wonder if you tell if the two of you would tell me tell our listeners a little bit what you understand fan fiction and slash fiction to be
2: I I don't I've never written fan fiction in my life
0: do you have you ever read it
2: I've never read it
0: Melanie is shaking her head. There. She's not going there. No. Okay.
2: Well, Kate's never, I've never read her. I, I was one of those kids who was drawn my own world at the age of 13 <laughs> already. So that was my, I've always been writing fan fiction in my own world. <laughs> but obviously not enough slash in my own world. I don't know. Oh, wait, I've done a little of that too. Never mind.
0: <laughs> so one of the main aspects of this uh, genre is, of course, strong women characters. Yes. And I, I think one of the, the things that I think has helped launch the popularity of this are some TV series. Uh, Buffy, Buffy. Buffy the Vampire mm-hmm. Slayer. Is. Buffy,
2: absolutely. yeah.
0: So tell us a little bit about creating strong women characters in these paranormal romances. You created a strong women character for yours. She's a witch.
1: All of my women are, are strong. All of my female characters are strong. I have terrible time. Well, for a while, I had a terrible time writing short women because I'm tall. And it's just the way I look at the world is tall. So I had to, to be very conscious about how someone eight inches shorter than I am would see the world. And I think I com- finally conquered that one. And what novel? Then I had a problem with, um, with blondes. I had a terrible time writing blondes. So and I decided I would have to write a couple of blondes in order to learn how to think blonde. And I, I did that one pretty well. Well, how, how did you change I haven't your thinking? Challenged, I haven't challenged myself to write a weak um, doormat female. I think I'd probably throw up. And that's really not good for your keyboard.
0: Kate?
2: I think I've always written strong women. In um, Spirit Gate, actually, I went out of my way to write as my main female point of view character a, a young woman, she's only 17, who has no athleticism, no martial arts, because what I really, I tend to write more athletic women or women who have a lot of, uh, who, who, who can fight or who can handle themselves physically or who are s- physically strong. Um, but in this case, I went out of my way to write one who had a different s- forms of strength, some uh, emotional strength. And I, I did that deliberately to try to write against type for me. So I normally write reasonably strong women or very strong women.
0: I'm wondering if you could both talk about, since you've both written series fiction, and in fact, Kate, you've just started a new series. Tell us a little bit about how you begin a series. I mean, you start. You just finished The Crown of Stars. I did series that was seven books yes 10 years just about um you've just started a new series which you say will be seven books So i hope so so you have have mapped out your life for the next 10 years (laughs) tell me how how do you do that and and how much preparation do you do when you start the world building i mean
2: i i want to say that with crossroads it's supposed to be and if it cooperates and God knows they never cooperate. It's supposed to be a standalone trilogy, a standalone novel that's like the middle novel. Again, it's a generational thing. And then a final trilogy, which is actually the first, that's what I started writing. And then I had to write a prologue to get some of the backstory in, and the prologue started getting so long. I realized it wouldn't work as a prologue, and then my husband said, why don't you just make that its own novel, and that's where Spirit Gate comes from. That's, this is the prologue to the trilogy I was originally gonna write. Part of this comes about because uh, my father is a history teacher. So, for me, there isn't, stories can't be discreet. They can't have a beginning and an end with blank on either side. There's always something that happened before, and there's always something that's going to happen after. And I can't stop my brain from thinking like that about everything I write. So, I could write before and after, and up and down, and in other parts of the world. I mean, it just, that's just how the process works for me. That's how I think. Um, but I'll tell you quickly, what usually happens with me is I'll get a scene, which is a character moving in a landscape who has a situation. And then I, and then I spend several years trying to figure out who that character is, what the landscape looks like, which is the world building, and then, and the repercussions of the situation. After a couple of years of letting that percolate in my mind, then I start to write. So I actually have to have been thinking about a book for three, four, or five years before I can start to write it.
0: Melanie, you've been thinking about the, this book for some eight
2: years, is it? Oh, I wouldn't say that.
1: The whole eight years has been devoted to Spellbinder. Um,
0: is this a, the beginning of a series? It seems uh, like yes. it. Yes.
1: Yeah, I'm working on the second one right now.
0: So tell us a little bit about how you set up this series, which is a contemporary urban... Fantasy well horror.
1: happily. I didn't have to do a lot of world building since the world is ours in fact sort of What do you mean sort of
0: well, I I'm not <gasps> did I do, did I
1: get New York wrong again?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I don't personally know any witches. And,
1: oh, no. okay. Okay. Well, i had done a lot of research for um, actually a lot of research for Golden Key um, into flowers and herbs and symbology and uses and things like that. A lot of, most of which comes out of folk medicine, which can be viewed as being part of the, the hedge witchery, which is, you know, the the wise old woman that everybody went to because the doctor charged too much and probably killed everybody off anyway. There was that research. There was research for another book, um, which if another one I eventually will write I should live so long things that uh, were kind of loitering with in t- with intent and eventually all sort of mushed together into uh, spellbinder
0: there's a lot of uh, crime fiction in spellbinder as well isn't
1: there'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I mean, I all mean, well, the main I,
0: characters. I mean, oh, oh, oh! crime yes.
1: fiction. I, yeah, I see. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, it's something I, of a mystery. You know, I, I love, I, I love mysteries. Couldn't write one to save my life. Um, I'm terrible at that kind of stuff because with, with a whodunit, you have to write it knowing whodunit, and part of my, part of my process is sort of having an idea of where I'm going, except not really sure how I'm going to get there and that's how I keep myself entertained. And as I said before if I'm not entertained then the audience is not going to be entertained and at least if I'm entertained I have a slim a slim hope that the audience will be as well. I mean, A lot of them aren't going to be but that's probably because they don't have a sixth sense of humor like I do.
0: Kate, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you first and I also want to get to Melanie about this. One of the most entertaining aspects of f- fantasy fiction for me is the historical Relationship that that it really is a, a form of historical fiction. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what historical fiction has informed your fantasy. What historical fact has informed your fantasy, and what kind of writing, historical writing, you guys look to? Kate?
2: I read very little historical fiction. Uh, strangely enough, I don't. Uh, it, it, it. I don't like it that much. I don't. I don't dislike it. It just doesn't resonate for me. Um, but I love to read history and. I like to read, um, I'm currently reading a book about Jewish women in the Middle Ages, that, that he's going through all these, the, the Geniza, the Cairo Geniza um, m- scrolls and, and manuscripts and um, books from the Middle Ages, and he's outlining, he, he's finding, you know, what, what about monogamy, polygamy, age of marriage, engagements, when did the matchmaker arise, using examples from all these, from from all these actual sources. And it's just fascinating. And what people are saying back then is fascinating. So I really like when I can to go back to translated, uh, because I can't read in the original, translated sources. I, Mm. I really feel when I read a chronicle or these scraps Of people written in that time that I'm talking to them, or well, not that I'm talking to them, but they're they're talking to me, and that I'm touching them.
1: Yes, touching their lives. You're looking at them. You're seeing something that happened in their lives. But and if
2: it's a chronicler like um, Vyrudkind, who I who wrote a chronicle of Otto the Great's life, which I stole from extensively for Crown of Stars, I felt like he was talking to me, and uh, I love that.
1: Primary, there is nothing like a primary source. Absolutely nothing. Um, Melanie, I went to uh, my degree. Actually, is my bachelor's is from is in history from Scripps College in Claremont. We don't do fish. Um, that's Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to catalog a collection of letters that had been sent to and sent by a woman who had worked as a donut dolly in World War II. Now these were the young women who worked with, they were part of the Red Cross. They were not nurses. They were not administrators. What they did was they went out on the tarmac when the guys in in the bombers were taking off in the morning to go bomb Rommel in North Africa and they would have donuts and they'd have a Victrola, and they'd have coffee, and they'd be playing you know, Benny Goodman, you know, as and and having a a donut and coffee with these guys, and they're you know pretty young American girls, reminders of why we why we fight, and these guys would go off and they'd go bomb Rommel for the, for the morning or afternoon, and then these young women, most of them incredibly sheltered, from small and medium-sized towns in in Indiana would go back out when the planes were expected back in again with the donuts and the coffee and the Victrola and they would count how many planes and compare that number with the number that went out and they would know that some of those guys that they talked with and flirted with that morning were dead and these were letters from one of these girls and talking about her friends who were also donut dollies, um, which is kind of a dreadful name for, for what they did. These girls were these guys' last look at home. And to read the letters going back and forth from this young woman, primary source, nobody had touched these things since she got, I think since she got home in 1946 or 47, and
0: where did you find these?
1: Uh, they were they were uh, willed to the college. Her grandmother um, had been a founder of the uh, League of Women Voters, and at Scripps College there is a book collection, a collection of books by, for, and about women, um, called the Ida Rest McPherson Collection, and it's downstairs in our in our beautiful library. I'm getting in a plug for Scripps. Um, they'll love that. Um, anyway, that Suzanne McPherson was Ida Rest McPherson's granddaughter, and um, as part of of her will, she she gave these these letters to Scripps College, and they're just unbelievable. To touch them to begin with, just to touch them, to be able to read them, and to know that nobody really had probably read this stuff since the nineteen forties and the primary source and for a for a historian there is nothing more incredible than getting your your greedy little fingers on something that that nobody's seen for you know a couple of decades
0: so kate tell me how when you find these primary sources how do you transform them in your mind into the building blocks of your created worlds,
2: I'm not sure that I really understand that process. Sometimes I just steal. I'll read a, I'll read an incident, and I'll think, "Oh, that's good," and I'll just take it, um, transform the names, transform some of the, you know, the place or part of the event, and just plug it right in, and I could go through Crown of Stars and point you to scenes that I have just stolen from primary sources. And sometimes they're things as small as, as the villain, Hugh, taunting uh, um, the hero, Sanglant. One is an educated, smooth-talking, super-intelligent man taunting the jock who's not so good with his words, but who's good, you know, he's a good man, um, in front of everybody in court to try to get him mad and make him lose his temper. That's straight from some primary source. I don't even remember now. Um, I could track it down. Um, so partly I steal little things. Sometimes I steal big things. Other times it's the sense of how people talk and act that I try to incorporate um, A lot of it is just trying to get a sense of how people are thinking and interacting with their society that's different than the way I would in my own society. Everything goes into the soup.
1: Everything you read, everything you see, everything you've experienced, everything you've heard about, um, it all goes into the big vat and some things combine with other things and you get to use them and some things just sort of sit there for a while and wait for their time. Um, But it makes me absolutely insane when someone says to me, where do
2: you get your ideas? Where do I not get ideas? Yeah. Everything. Everything. Any day I might stumble across something and I'll go, Ooh, I like her hair. I'm going to use that someday. Or someone's interaction will trigger something in me or I'll be reading something and something suddenly will pop out at me that I think, oh, that was just the piece I was looking for to finish the way their house looked. I, I mean, it is true everywhere, everywhere. There's a, um.
1: just to throw away maybe a paragraph in, uh, in Spellbinder that happens to it's one of the many true stories in Spellbinder that I'm not going to identify which ones are true and which ones aren't. But this one happens to be true. Um, My father really hated to be cold. And in the United States Navy, he was up, um, oh, cleaning up after the Battle of Attu um, up in Alaska. And uh, they would, the guys had to go around and and, um, make sure that the the Japanese in the foxholes were dead and the japanese had of course these beautiful fur parkas for um cold weather fighting and uh daddy collected a bunch of fur parkas and um there were the other guys uh the other u.s navy guys were down on the beaches putting up wooden floors and and for the tents and my father ended up with the only fur lined tent in the united states navy because he really hated to be cold but see I've known that story since I was, you know, what, five?
0: And it just now got into one of your novels? Yeah,
1: it finally made its way into one of the books.
2: And a lot of times, too, what's interesting about being able to read primary sources and and then just the way you experience the world is a a lot of times we focus so much on the great and the powerful, but a lot of most of my best ideas come from just the ordinary people, the common Mm -hmm. people, things that – you know, like what Melanie's father did—things that happened to any of you know my parents or anyone.
0: We've been speaking with Kate Elliott and Melanie Ron. Kate's new book is *Spirit Gate*. Melanie's new book is *Spellbinder*. Thank you for speaking with me, ladies.
1: Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.